Matthew 24, as we continue to move slowly through this chapter, looking at the Olivet Discourse and what it means for us today. We're going to look today just, we're not going to get very far, but we're going to look at the meaning of the end of the age. Last week, we talked about Jesus Christ, verses 37 through 38 uh, in chapter 23 was a picture of the prophecy of A.D. 70, the destruction of Jerusalem, a prophetic uh, drama. Jesus goes out from the east, out to the east as portrayed in Ezekiel chapter 11, that where in Ezekiel... God's glory departed the temple before it was destroyed the first time. And it says his glory went out and went east and rested on the mount. Jesus, portraying that same kind of thing, goes out after he has a woe of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. He goes out and goes east to the Mount of Olives. And then he declares there in the first verse, he begins to start talking about there when he left the temple, they pointed out, his disciples pointed out what was the temple and all its stones. And Jesus tells them not one stone will be left on the other. Tremendously significant for Jews because Jews to Jews, the temple was their glory. So we told you last week, it was this big, huge, massive structure, 16 to 20 stories high that could not possibly be destroyed because the Jews believe it had divine protection. It could never be destroyed. However, Jesus says it will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left on the other. And we learned that he would be the temple. And if we belong to him, Since he dwells in us, we are the temple of God. And we talked about that last week and how the temple is us and how we should take care of our temple and guard our temple and our temples should be holy. But let's look at these verses once again. Let's look at this and let's read together. It says in verse 3, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us... When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered to them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Now I want you to understand that Jesus went down and it's out to the east and it said that he basically went to the Mount of Olives. Pictured before you is a picture of modern day Mount of Olives. If you go up to the top of that picture there, that is the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives then looking back 
towards the west, looking back towards Jerusalem. Jesus can see the temple, and so can the disciples see the, the, temp the, the temple there. And so what he is looking at and tells them in verse 3, as they come to him, they ask this question. They say, what is the sign of the close of the age, or what we call the end of the age. Now, here's where we have a lot of confusion concerning this statement. When Jesus is talking about something now in that time, he means in that time. Yet, there are those who will see this as a far distant future, when he's talking about the, the disciples asking when the end of the age is, that this means that the earth at 2,000 years later or more is going to be totally destroyed or there's something different. But in this context, believe it's saying the end of the age, it means it's an expiration of a period of time, not the end of the world. However, however, the futurist sees this as the end of the world when God's kingdom is established once for all. Now understand, the kingdom has been interpreted several different ways. For those who are of the dispensational premillennial thing, they believe that the kingdom of God has been stopped. It has been stopped and put on hold until... Jesus comes again, there's the rapture of the church, there's a seven-year period of tribulation, then there is a thousand-year reign, and then God sets up his kingdom. However, I believe that a different teaching is what the teaching of the Bible says, that the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God has come upon you. These are all words that Jesus said. And so we are in that kingdom at this time here and now. The clue, I believe, is in verse 7. If we look at some of these kind of things, uh, in verse 6, it says this, See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Now, if you go to verse 34, you will see when Jesus goes through this whole thing, and telling them what's going to happen, how these things are going to be uh, come about, what the signs are going to be, he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. These things, those things meaning that which he just talked about. But again, the futurist, however, believes in this that this generation refers to a race, a nation, are those who see the signs in the distant future that are mentioned in Matthew 24. Now, back in 1970, there was a huge, huge, mega-selling book called The Late Great Planet Earth. It's mentioned, uh, I mention it here because this gives you an idea of what the futurist will say. And this is what Hal Lindsey says in his book. He says, now this is important, I want you to look at this. The most important sign in Matthew has to be the restoration of the Jews to the land in the rebirth of Israel. 
Even, it says there, look at this. Even the figure of the uh, speech fig tree has been a historic symbol of national Israel. Now, I want you to think about this just real quickly. He says the most important sign in Matthew. Now, we're going to look at that in just a moment, but I want you to keep that in mind. But when you go down and you look at this, it says even the figure of speech fig tree... And notice what he says before at the figure of speech. According to the dispensational premillennial viewpoint of the hermeneutic of Scripture, it means that where we need to be is the most literal translation that we can get of this, these words. And yet, he says this is symbolic. It's a figure of speech, fig tree. So he doesn't even stay with his own hermeneutic. But when you get here, this is what he says again. He says, when the Jewish people, after nearly 2,000 years of exile, under relentless persecution, became a nation again on 14th of May, 1948, the fig tree put forth its leaves. Jesus said that this would indicate that he was at the door ready to return. Now, where is he referring? He is referring to verses 32 and 34. Listen to what he has to say concerning th that about the fig tree. It says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. That's what he is referring to in this the very gates. This generation will not pass away. Well, what are all these things? I want you to think about that with me. When it says, this generation, verse 34, will not pass away until all these things take place. Do you see anywhere that it says 1948 in Matthew? There. You don't. What Jesus is referring to goes back again to verse 4. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name and say, I am the Christ, lead many astray. You'll hear wars, wars of wars and rumors of wars. It says, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes in various places. You're going to be delivered up to tribulation. You're going, some of you are going to receive death penalty. You'll be hated. False prophets will arise. Lawlessness will increase. Love of many will grow old. I cannot find May 14th, 1948 there. Because it's not. The re referral goes back to all these things. However, he goes on to say something like this. Then he said, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What generation? Obviously, in context, that's very important, in context, the generation that would see the signs, chief among them, the rebirth of Israel. Okay, chief among them. A generation in the Bible is something like 40 years. If this is a correct deduction, then within 40 years or so of 1948, these things could take place. Many scholars who have studied Bible prophecy all their lives believe that this is so. 
what Hal Lindsey believed and some other believes, and Tim LaHaye and some others, the author of the, of the Left Behind series, actually believed that 1988 was the day. It was going to happen. 1988. Where are we today? 2021. This is one of the things that said that this is going to happen. Many scholars who have been studying Bible prophecy all their lives believe that this is so. All these things were going to happen. Chief among them, the rebirth of Israel, because this generation is seeing these signs. Now, folks, he also says this. Many scholars who have studied Bible prophecy all their lives believe that this is so. The question I have to ask on this kind of thing is, many scholars. What scholars? Back in 1996, I had the opportunity to go back to school and uh, had enrolled in a counseling degree at University of Houston Clear Lake. I found out soon as I, as I enrolled to receive my master's in marriage and family therapy, I had to take, because I'd been out of school for so long, I had to take all my psychology courses over. I had to take 21 hours of undergraduate classes. One of those classes was research and statistics. That class gave me tremendous headaches because it involved math. And I've told you before, there's three kinds of people in this world, those who can do math and those who can't. So therefore, I was having a, a tremendous problem with this. Like on the very first day, I, I, I realized me and this other lady who was sitting on the other side were the oldest people in the class. And at that time, I was in my 40s. We're the oldest people in the class. Folks, you got to understand my history. I failed trigonometry. The first six weeks, I had an average of 32. And they took me and put me in office picking up, picking up uh, attendance folders because they said, even if you made 100 on all the rest of the test, you're still getting an F. That's how bad I was. My dad wanted me to take it. I have no idea why. I made B's in geometry, but algebra and algebra 2, it was C's and D's. I was terrible. I could not do it. That's why God called me to the ministry. He knew I couldn't do math. Very first day, they start doing a formula. And they took a number and put it in between these two little bars on the, on the board. Some of you math people know what that means. They had a minus or a plus. I'm in the back raising my hand. She's going through this formula. I said, Doctor, I, why are those bars there? And the whole class turned around and went, like, who is this stupid Goomba, you know? And I, I just said, I, I don't know. And she said, when's the last time you had a math class? I said, 1976, San Jacinto Junior College, Introduction to College Algebra. She said, you might want to come see me after class. And so, therefore, we went, and she had to tutor me through all this kind of stuff. It was awful. I had headaches all the time. But one thing that she did talk to us about in that, she gave us stuff that let, her, let us see how to think critically when you have statistics or someone says things like many scholars. For example, you've all seen the commercials that says three out of four dentists recommend Crest toothpaste. She began to teach us and said, you have that statistic. What does it mean? What dentist? Dentist who failed? Dental school? Those who were in the bottom of their class or the top of the class? 
What if these were three out of four dead dentists recommend these things? How do we know? You don't have this. Basically, they are trying to get you to say dentist is a position of, quote, unquote, smartness and authority. But how do you know? You don't, you're not giving anything else. You just don't know. And in here, when you have someone that comes up and says, many scholars say this, I'm asking myself the same question. Dead scholars? Dumb scholars? What is it? What kind of scholars? Do they have any background whatsoever in theological discourse? We don't know. It just says that they've studied Bible prophecy. You have to be careful on that. For example, we're sitting, we're sitting, I'm sitting at my house, okay? It's the day after the Super Bowl. We have a thread on our text messages where all our brother and sister in loves. We have this text thread. I get this thing popped up, and my sister in law is saying, Is this legitimate? Someone had sent it to her from her church asking her the same thing Is this true? And it was from a guy by the name of Bob Thompson that I have never, ever heard of, ever. And he starts the article off like this. I am about to pull back the veil on a prophetic teaching that you have never heard. Hmm. Immediately, what does that imply? He and only he have known this mystery that is about to be revealed and nobody else in the history of the world knows this. And he starts the article out in 2008 as I was watching the Olympics from Beijing, China. I watched the opening ceremonies and the Spirit of God, there's the qualifying authority, right? We can't question that, right? Because the Spirit of God told him, correct? Therefore, he's saying, the Spirit of God told me immediately this is the Spirit of Gog. If you've ever read Ezekiel 38 and 39, it mentions Gog and Magog. And in, in, in late, late, late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey came up with this thing that Gog and Magog represent Russia based upon the Hebrew sounding of the word. It's Rosh. You ever heard of Rosh Hoshana, the Jewish holiday? It means chief, holiday, chief. It's used over 600 times in the Old Testament. But because it sounds, quote, unquote, to Hal Lindsey like Russ, all of a sudden, God became Russia. Russia. So therefore, Russia is here. So it goes on, and he talks about, here's the Spirit of God told me, this is the Spirit of Gog. And then he goes on and says, and when I watched the halftime at Super Bowl, I realized and was revealed by the Spirit that a demonic principality of Gog has set itself over the United States. Now, where did he get it? From watching the Super Bowl, halftime. And he said, this is some of the most exciting prophetic Revelations that you have ever heard. Now, here's the deal. Here is a church member sending something to my sister-in-law, asking her, is this true and is this verified? 
Now, here's the problem. This guy's, this guy's wacko. I'm sorry, this is wrong because there is not a Gog demonic you know, principality hovering over America at this point in time. There's, it's just not. It's just, that is just a wild teaching. And soon and very soon after we finish this kind of thing, I think I need to teach on spiritual warfare and some of these things and what happened to Satan during this time when Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected again. Uh, might get into that kind of thing so that you can see it. But folks, here's what really disturbs me, is that someone asked someone else who knows nothing about any kind of prophetic teaching in the Bible, whether this is true or not, and based upon reading some of this, we have countless Christians over and over again trusting in the words of what people say without going to what the Bible has to say itself. And that scripture teaches about scripture and that is one of the best commentaries that we can have is let scripture teach us this not putting something out on facebook and asking people is this true i bet it is true oh my goodness there's a demonic principality over here what do we got to do oh we got to bind the the demonic principality that's what we need to be about we need to go about binding satan you ever thought about that teaching in the book of job God said, you can touch him, can't kill him. So when Satan showed up, what if Job said, I bind you in the name of Jesus? You think that was going to work? Not at all. Because what God ordained was going to come to pass. You understand? So these kind of things, we have to watch out, folks, for when they say things like this, these many scholars, who are they? Are they reputable? What are their names? Where are they? But here's some questions I want you to think about based upon this kind of teaching in this. The big question. Why is it in the quote that we just said, and this is what he says, Obviously, in context, the generation that would see the signs, why is that added to the context? Let me read this to you. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Where is it that it says this generation that will see these signs not, will not pass away until all these things are 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 done, gone, whatever. Here's the thing. That was added. Now, here's the danger of that. Proverbs 35 and 6. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. Do not add to His words. And yet, we have them adding to the word. That's one of the biggest problems that I have with that kind of system, adding to those words. There's a story that goes that a church was holding, out in a rural area, was holding a Bible conference on how to study the Bible. And the professor that they brought in was trying to explain to people the different thing, uh, methods of uh, interpretation. One of them happened to be, or three of them happened to be, what he called eisegesis, exegesis, and extragesis. Eisegesis, in the translation of the scripture, basically means that you are 
putting things into the scripture that are not there. You are adding to them. Exegesis is what we do here on Sunday morning. We take it and we exegete it. We say what it says. Extra Jesus, basically, you know, is that you are, again, adding things. Excuse me, eisegesis is you're reading into. Exegesis is that you're reading out of and adding things to it. Well, as he is explaining this, eisegesis, exegesis, extra Jesus, an old farmer gets up and walks out. And the usher, one of the deacons, meets him at the door and says, is there anything wrong, son? A sir, and he said, son, I was doing okay, and I kind of let it go when he said, eyes of Jesus. He said, but when he said there was an extra Jesus, I just had to leave, right? I had to leave. And understand this. Here's a point. This is not extra Jesus. This is basically extra Jesus, adding things where they are not. Then another question, which we just brought up a while ago, is this. Where in Matthew 24 does it mention the rebirth of Israel as one of the signs of his coming? He just got through saying, Matthew 24, in context, you remember? In context, it says the generation that would see these things, chief among them, the rebirth of Israel. Read through, that's one of your assignments, read through Matthew 24 and you will not find the rebirth of the nation Israel anywhere in Matthew chapter 24. That's why when we look at something when it says the end of the age or when it says this generation, author David Chilton said this, this generation when studied in terms of how it's used in gospels can only mean the generation to whom Jesus is speaking. And he makes us, gives us a challenge. Get out your concordance and look up every New Testament occurrence of the word generation, which is 43 times in the New Testament, and see if it ever means race in any other context. And then he lists all those things. Not one of those references is speaking of the entire Jewish race over a thousand years. All use the word in its normal sense of the sum total of those living at the same time. So we're going to try this this morning. Okay, we're going to try to look at a passage and see if this works. You don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 24, it says this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with the generation that sees these signs and condemn it. Does it say that? It does not. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the generation that sees these signs and this Jewish race over a thousand years and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something is greater than Solomon is here. When we look at that and we add words to Matthew, anything other than what the text says itself, confusion begins. In fact, 
Lindsay gets confused concerning the length of a generation. Now, what we just stated, what I just stated back on slide number seven, don't have to go back there, but just trust me, it's there. It says a generation is 40 years. Did you hear that? Did you read that? A generation is 40 years. Okay. However, here is something absolutely different. In an interview published in Christianity Today, April 15th, 1977, seven years after the publication of the late great planet Earth, Lindsay told Ward Gasky these words, I don't know how long a biblical generation is, perhaps somewhere between 60 and 80 years. The state of Israel was established in 48. There are a lot of world leaders who are pointing to the 1980s as being the, the time of some very momentous event. Perhaps it will be then, but I feel certain that it will take place when? Before the year when? 2000. The year 2000. What is it? Is generation 40 years or generation 60 or 80 years? What is it? Those things keep changing. It's interesting, two weeks ago I left the church and was going down the highway, going back to my house and turned on, is it Jan Markle or whatever on NPR radio or some kind of radio, AFR radio or whatever like this, on the end times and concluding her, her radio program, she said, folks, the rapture is near. Then she said this in the same breath. But you know, I've been saying that for 30 years. But I still believe it's going to happen. I still believe it's going to happen. So, let's look at this just real quickly. How do other translations translate this? I wanted to show you this as an example. This is what it says, the Moffat's translations. I tell you truly, this present generation will not pass away till all this happens. That's exactly what it talks about in its context. The New English Bible says, I tell you this, this present generation will live to see it all. Contemporary English version says this, I can promise you that some of the people of this generation will still be alive when all this happens. And even the international children's version, I tell you the truth, all these things will happen while the people of this time are still living. Still living. So when we look at this in summary, dear folks, this is the deal. The phrase generation, this generation used eight other times in Matthew, every time in context, never refers to race, never refers to a nation, never says it's the Jewish people living a thousand years from now. Never says it. In 2336, it clearly refers to the Jews Jesus was speaking to in A.D. 30. And in Matthew 2434, he's speaking to that same generation. And 2434 is part of the response to the disciples' question. When will these things be? And when will be the close of the age? But we have to ask, well, aren't we in the last days? Folks, Jesus will come again. He will come again, but it may not be like we think. So the question I get all the time, aren't we in the last days? Well, it depends on what you mean by the last days, okay? Notice this. You see this little picture? See, that's the tongues of fire coming down upon the people in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. And they started speaking with what? 
other tongues. And everybody from all the nations, it says in Acts 2, if you go read it, all the nations of the earth were there, were there, came down, and Peter uh, says these words, in the last days, God, it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. What was he saying? This very thing happened this day is a fulfillment of Joel chapter two. It is being answered in the last days. This is what he's saying. In the last days. What are the last days? The days that Peter was in. He was saying, this is being fulfilled right now. This is what's happening. So how he interpret the last days were the events that were happening then. Again, in 1 John 2, 18, it says this, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour hour, it's not some guy over in Russia that is living at this present time. What did John say? This is the last hour. This is where we're living. This is what's happening. And folks, in a few weeks, I will share with you who was the Antichrist. So you need to come back so you can find out. Again, in 1 Peter 1.20, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. In these last times, there where are they were hearing this and reading this. It tells us in Hebrews, what did Jesus do? In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, to whom the world was created. Now listen to this one. This one will blow you away. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now what did the disciples ask? When is going to be the end of the age? And what does Paul say? These things were written down for our instruction on whom, on whom what? On all those folks who received Jesus Christ and we're experiencing this right now on whom all the end of the ages has come. Not, it's going to be, has come. So, what was the last days referring to? Well, the last days was the old covenant. And because of the work of Christ, according to Hebrews 8, 13, the old covenant age was made obsolete. A new covenant was given. A new covenant was given, and the end of the age refers to the last days of the old covenant. So what did he do away with? This is what he did. The sacrificial symptoms of bulls and goats, he replaced it with himself. You remember John the Baptist. Jesus comes walking by. He's there baptizing. He looks up and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
And so the sacrificial system had been set up through Jesus Christ, and we understand that through God from the Old Testament, but now he's the lamb. No more do you have to have sacrifices. No more do you have to have a day of atonement. No more do you have to have a lamb that was spotless where the high priest then would take that, that, that lamb and take it and slaughter it. Then he'd take the blood of the lamb and put it on the scapegoat and they would, he would pray over the sins of Israel and then someone would take that goat up to the top of the hill and they release it and all the people would be watching as the goat goes over the hill representing the sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. They had to do that once a year. Do they now? No. Do you now? No. Why? Because Jesus became the sacrificial lamb. He replaced the sacrificial system. He also replaced the temple with his own body. John chapter 2, we read that last week. He said he was speaking of the temple of his body. And now he's got a true tabernacle. There was a sanctuary built with hands. He is the true tabernacle. He is the true temple. And the great thing about this is he replaced sinful high priests, sinful high priests, and became the perfect high priest himself to where we don't have to go to a priest We don't have to go and say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned and sit in a little box and wait till someone tells me to go say 27 Hail Marys and then you'll be okay. Praise God. We don't have that. What do we have? We have a high priest that we can go to and that high priest, it says, is always making intercession for us at the throne of God. Folks, that's what we have today. Aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful that you have a high priest that is proclaiming his own blood before the Father and saying, I have atoned for their sins once for all. So that's what this generation means. It's basically saying this. This is going to be the end of the age or the close of the age. This is the close of this Jewish sacrificial system. Because of me, you don't have to go through this anymore. Never, never again. Well, you have to go through this. I died once for all. And he has become the temple. He dwells within us. We are his temple. We are his temple. And we'll get into this a little bit later after we get through some of this and we go through the different subjects. We will talk about that third temple that they say that's going to be rebuilt. That futurists will say is going to be rebuilt. And yet again, we'll look at the scripture and we see we don't see a third temple mentioned ever in the book of Revelation. So folks, here's the great thing. We want to conclude today and we'll get into these things of wars and rumors of wars and trust me, next week we'll look at these things about wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and we're saying, Brother Andy, these things are happening now. I'm going to show you from history where they happened then too. Where they happened then so that you can see what Jesus was talking about from the time of AD 30, the time of his crucifixion, to AD 70, 40 years, a generation where all those things took place. I hope you'll read through it, study it, and when you hear or get a Facebook post, read with discernment, read with discernment about what it actually says. Read with it, please. And learn and study. And I know that you will, you will see some things that perhaps you've been taught that really, well, let's, let's talk about those things. Let's discuss those things.
in this, we want to celebrate the high priest that we have had, the one who has come and said that he is the new covenant. Remember what he said with his disciples. You're taking my body. This bread is my body. This blood is my blood. This wine, this cup is my blood for a new covenant that I will give unto you. And so therefore, we are celebrating the new covenant that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so just like we did last month, we want to do the same thing again. Uh, Brother Philip is going to come assist me with this. We want to ask you to come, and those on this side, come to Brother Philip. Those on this side, come here, if you would. And we come together. You can come together as a family. You can come together as a group, however you want to. We'll say a quick prayer, and then you will take of the Lord's Supper. Celebrating what Christ has done for us.